You are listening to the oneofus.net podcast network. One of Us is a podcast and video network funded all but entirely by donations and subscriptions. We do accept pitches for audio-based or banner ads, but on a case-by-case basis. If you are interested in that, contact us at oneofusnet at gmail.com. With the amount of audio and video content we generate, it is expensive and extremely time-consuming to keep things running. Please go to the webpage oneofus.net and sign up for a subscription at 2 5 10 or $25 and get a ton of bonus content. One of us needs and appreciates all your support. It's another episode of Digital Noise. I'm your host, Chris, and joining me is Sir John Golson. Hello. <laughs> Wait, now, what point in line for the throne of England are you? I'm unclear. 17th in line in the procession. <laughs> oh, I hate to... I'm not the guy who, like... Like, I've, I am laughing very hard at a lot of the, like, morbid jokes that are out there, yeah. but I'm not sharing them. But boy, some of them are making me laugh because I'm like, I don't give a fuck about the the royals. I just don't. I don't. I'm like sad when a person dies who, even if they did spend a lot of their life uh, oppressing other people and cultures. And she was so young. <laughs> right? I was like, why did the good die young? I don't know. Hey, man, like full support. You're like, if that means something to you, then, you know, that's you. And I'm not going, I'm certainly not going around talking shit, but. To me, not a big deal. Yeah, no, I'm I'm good. Like we don't even do that with our. It would be like if in our country we revered the Washingtons <laughs> and like all their descendants, and we still were fascinated, even though they held no particular power. If we were all just still sort of like fascinated with the Washington lineage and right. who the children were, and would be weird. It's it 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 would be weird for us, and it's even weirder to me that we. As a country, are obsessed with somebody else's version of that, right? Like, that's that's weird. I I completely agree with you. Uh, although I admit that of all the memes I saw, the one I actually thought was the funniest was not mean spirited at all. It was mm-hmm. just kind of goofy, which is a play on the last Paul Walker scene in Fast and the Furious. You know, where he and Dom yeah. look at each other side by side in their separate cars, and the road splits, and they go their own ways. So somebody memed it with Queen Elizabeth in the other car. It's <laughs> like that's kind of funny. Nice. <laughs> anyway, uh, no movies about the Queen. I don't think we don't have any movies about the Queen, do we? No, there's. No. No. Okay. There, wait. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> not the queen, not the band queen, not drag queens, nothing. We have stuff that takes, we have some things that take place in England. At least one thing that takes place in London, England. Two, okay. Two that take place in London. Okay. But they have nothing to do with the queen. Okay. So we're good. She doesn't have a cameo? No. Okay. Well, I think I've seen Scott Thompson play the Queen more than I've actually seen the Queen. Oh, no. Me, me too. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> or other people in general, yeah. you know, like in Naked Gun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway, uh, we're going to get started with our stack. And our first one is Arrow's 4K re-release of the 1990 movie Flatliners. And once again, the 1990 movie Flatliners, not the 2017 movie Flatliners, because why would you watch that one? It's truly awful. Uh, but that being said, 
I'm not the world's biggest fan of the 1990 Flatliners either. I know some people are super obsessed with it, like really love it. And for me, I'm always like, I love the camera work and I love the lighting and there's some really interesting casting, but it's really dumb. <laughs> it, uh, when I was 15, I liked this movie. Yeah. Uh, now that I am 46, I do not like this movie. <laughs> yeah. uh, and I didn't know that. Um, I didn't know that I wouldn't like it. And when I watched it, I was like, oh, only a 15 year old could possibly enjoy this, like, uh, this kind of like half baked philosophical discussion amongst these, like, young people. But everything is sort of like, it is that 15 year old, 16 year old thing of like, like what lies beyond man and like you know i don't know how to describe it but there's like you have this thing where it's like i think you're just discovering like you've gone through childhood you've gone through puberty so you're getting like okay all your all your sexual stuff is kind of getting sorted <laughs> and now what's next is sort of philosophy and like what is life and what is the meaning of life and this felt about as mature as my whatever my thoughts were on the subject at age 15 like mm -hmm. it was like no deeper than that this is like uh, it feels like a like a urban legend that people who are very religious and and shit on science tell each other <laughs> i couldn't figure why like some people's stuff was like oh i did a i did a wrong and I'm haunted by an individual, whereas yeah. like Billy Baldwin is like, I keep seeing all the girls I screwed. And they also didn't resolve his. Do you notice? It just kind of, it just doesn't really resolve. Yeah. It's like, wait, what? <laughs> I was like, I mean, guess his, he had a comeuppance, but it didn't feel like that was it because he never learned anything really. Well, let's backtrack uh, a little bit because there may be people going, oh, I've never okay. seen Flatliners. Yeah. So Kiefer Sutherland plays Nelson Wright. He and a group of his friends, Julia Roberts, Kevin Bacon, William Baldwin, and Oliver Platt are all med students um, that, with very different backgrounds. But his whole thing is, look, that whole thing about people who see the light in the tunnel and see old relatives and everything when they're, they're dying, but then we bring them back, like near-death experiences, I think I want to scientifically, under scientific conditions, create the thing where I die and then bring me back and we can talk about it? I'm not sure good that does, really. Here's another near-death experience. Great. That's apocryphal. We don't really have anything else. But So friends reluctantly uh, agree to do this with, of course, the the university being completely unaware of it they do it secretly and uh he comes back and he's like oh god yeah like i went there and everything but I didn't tell them it was super fucked up and scary because he wants them to do it too because he's a real prick <laughs> and one at a time they start doing it and they all have their own experiences some of them not really scary some of them it's really really good you know like william baldwin's like dude i like basically it was just a world filled with me fucking beautiful woman it was great uh but then everybody's experiences they start having hallucinations and and real physical effects even uh in re their own real life of the, whatever it was their experience was what it was trying to teach them and for some it was man you're a terrible person like Kiefer Sutherland whose whose uh past is literally trying to physically kill him and uh some are more like you need to come to terms with something that's been haunting you uh like Julia Roberts and her uh her relationship with her father who killed himself and there's a lot of material that feels like this could have been really smart and good 
but it just isn't very well written. And it just kind of shrugs at points at the audience. Like, I guess, sure, this is what happens. Yeah. I mean, the best thing about it is the lighting, quite frankly, which is very giallo and cool and very exaggerated. There's some fun, like, there's a lot of Dutch angles and shit. And weird, like, where they sneak in to do these experiments is in a place where there's, like, half-broken, like, Greek statues with, like, giant, like, you know, Zeus head, like, (laughs) sitting in a room that's, like... 20 feet tall, but that's where they have to walk past to go do whatever it is they're doing. I mean, this is a Joel Shoemaker film, and it feels like they just took the set from Batman and Robin. <laughs> well, and, and when they when they announced him back in the day, Flatliners was like the thing that I was pointing at going, oh, he's going to be really good. If you've seen Flatliners, like it's, it's very stylized and yeah. it's so operatic looking and like it's going to look like it's going to look awesome. And then it like his Batman wasn't anything like Flatliners. Like it was. No. Sort of neon and chintzy and <laughs> yeah. like not even close. Yeah. And I'm like, again, I thought this was super cool when I was younger. Older me is just like, whatever. This is like, this is a half-baked idea. Yeah. That's the biggest problem. It's like, cool idea, bro. What are you going to do with it? Oh, that? Okay. <laughs> yeah. And I didn't see the remake. I mean, it's terrible. to hear that the remake is terrible, it's sort of like, how could you not improve upon this yeah when i watched this one i was really curious about the remake because i was like well, was, how could you, you not see this and it's, go i think okay. it's more of a requel yeah oh yeah. is it yeah i just don't know how you couldn't make it better yeah that's mind-boggling <laughs> i mean there was just right from the get-go somebody like i said you were doing this thing for science except it's nothing really for science at all we know that people can die and come back and they've even done it plenty of times on uh, like put people into comas and what have you like so you just want to experience an NDA. That's not science, dude. That's just extreme thrills. <laughs> you know, why don't you just climb Mount Everest, dude? <laughs> yeah. It also assumes things that like that that the stuff this is supposed to be stuff that was like their darkest fears or the things that they wrestle with mm-hmm. made more manifest, but we wrestle with the things that we wrestle with already. Mm-hmm. Like if I did a bad long ago, and it lingered so much that it affected my life, then it's something that I'm already thinking about. It's not necessarily like, hey, remember when you did this? It's right. kind of like, even if, you know, it's sort of like, well, yeah, because it motivates everything that I do. If it motivates every action I do, then I don't need the reminder that it exists. But the movie kind of treats like, everybody as if they're amnesiacs. And right. it's sort of like, oh, and they're all young people. It's like, oh, that thing that happened like 10 years ago. I've, oh, I totally forgot. I it's forgot like, that me and my friends essentially murdered another kid. Yeah. I totally forgot about that. <laughs> uh, it, hey, if you're a Flatliners fan, um, this, it, this 4K looks freaking fantastic. Yeah. That is very true. Um, And there are. There are big fans from this movie. And I think it's largely because, like you said, it's very stylish looking. It's very well shot. It's just very dumb. And 90s kids, it's, you know, it's the, uh, what are they, what were they called? They weren't the Brat Pack. They were the, uh, there was like the second wave where it was like Kiefer and Julia and Mm -hmm. Jason Patrick. Did they have their own name? Yeah, they had a name and I can't remember what it was. I don't know. But that was like that group. So Yeah. Yeah, Anyways. exactly. This is defi- Although you don't usually think of Oliver Platt as being that, but he was pretty much the same age as all of them. Yeah. He was just the fat guy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there's an audio commentary by two critics. There's um, an interview with uh, the screenwriter. There's Visions of Light, which is an interview with the cinematographer, the very good cinematographer, Jan DeBont, not such a great director. Um, 
<laughs> I mean, the guy was on so many good films as cinematographer, and then he tried his hand at directing, and you're like, oh, you're not all that great. Yeah, at speed. The... Yeah, you're right. Speed was good. Yeah, speed. Yeah. Uh, hereafter, interview the first assistant director, uh, a pre- piece on the restoration for the transfer. Um, Atonement, which is a uh, title for with the composer James Newton Howard and orchestrator Chris Boardman. Dressing for character, interview the costume designer, and then an image gallery, uh, insert booklet, uh, yada, yada, yada. So, that is Flatliners. What'd you think, John? Uh, I probably won't watch it again, ever. Yeah, I'm, you know, I hope that they don't upgrade. Like, 4K is it. That's as far as we're going, because then I won't have to watch Flatliners You get again. 8K in about five years. You get to rewatch God it. God damn it. Well, they say the human eye can't even tell the difference past a certain point. Like, then they, they said that in the early 1900s when they first introduced, like, <laughs> color film or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know uh, it's funny talking to, like, I, I now have a third job working at a movie theater, and I was wondering, why don't we have a 4K player? Because we have a Blu-ray player, but not a 4K player. And they're like, because we only have small screens and quite frankly you can't tell the difference between a high quality blu-ray and a 4k like on a small screen you can totally tell the difference on a big projection a really big projection screen but on one that's only like you know 15 feet long now nah, you won't be able to tell the difference like okay interesting yeah <laughs> all right well our next movie is uh, another is another horror film called yellow brick road no space between those words, but but alphabetized where appropriate. Um, obviously, that brings back memories of Wizard of Oz. This really has absolutely nothing to do with Wizard of Oz outside of, I guess, some subtext in here. What it feels like is a movie that didn't realize the Blair Witch Project existed, but had a similar idea <laughs> and just went ahead and made it. Um, it was kind of a, a cult hit when it originally came out. In well, God, John, when did this come out? Was it- 2010? Is that about right? Let's see. Yes, 2010. Um, and it's you know it's a found footage type thing with a, a bunch of people who are on an expedition uh, based on what could be urban legend, could be true about a whole town that disappeared. Just they wandered off into the wilderness and just disappeared. No, isn't No one knows what had happened to them seven, 70 years beforehand. And like, yeah, we're we're here scientifically to figure out. Uh, what happened to this whole town who walked off like that? Uh, the only real connection is the Wizard of Oz. Apparently, they had just seen the Wizard of Oz like in their local theater, and everybody left the theater and walked off into the woods and just never came back. Uh, like They found some of the bodies and everything, but most of them they never did. Um, the Basically, the eventually, the town just sort of like, intentionally let themselves stop thinking about it like like total denial that it ever happened type of deal but anyway so um after the team finally finding out where the actual trail was because everything had been classified and information lost they decide with this group of people to go out there and of course things go terribly wrong by a song of like Radio? <laughs> I don't know what it is it's like music coming from the woods that terrorizes them and go makes them go insane even though it's like old-timey music which i personally like i i I just never understood what this movie was trying to do i guess i think it is like an art house blair witch project it's it's competently made it it maintains a certain tone but then nothing is is escalated to any point of satisfaction Mm -hmm. um it's just kind of you know everybody kind of starts going crazy and hating each other on this long, long walk. 
um, it it never has the payoff that like you're you're you can be patient with it and sort of like okay okay and like I bet it's gonna end up someplace like mind blowing or like it's gonna just rock me to my core. I'm gonna see something or they're gonna discover something and it's just yeah. like it just it it it's not interested in that. Um, That's such such a shame, though, because the idea is cool, right? You're like, whoa, it sets up a a mystery and the whole, wait, where's the music coming from? And it feels like it's going to go somewhere interesting after that. And But no, it's just, ah, the music is making me want to kill people. And that's about it. It reminds me a little bit of the Gene Rollin film, uh, The Iron Rose, which is about a couple that go into a into a old cemetery to make out and then they can't find the exit to the cemetery. Hmm. And the movie is them wandering around trying to, trying to leave like an impossible place, liminal spaces, as the kids say nowadays, <laughs> like uh, places that shouldn't exist. And, you know, that's my thing with this is I, I've always felt like when they start the trail that they're, it's almost like something like uh, Annihilation or the Area X books where it's like, it's not, they're already not in our, world right uh that there that there's someplace else but again there's no significant reward for your time with this one it's which sucks because again it is sort of like it it has good actors you'll recognize uh one of the actresses from righteous gemstones nowadays i i'd completely forgotten right who plays uh uh, what's his name's wife yeah Uh, um what's his name uh jim jesse gemstone is that jesse well i did think which is the I don't. Oh, Danny McBride. Yeah, Danny McBride. Yeah, yeah. Um, I guess that's uh, Anessa Ramsey. Yeah, everything is. is I don't know if that's. I don't know if that's. Or the no, actress. wait, Cassidy Freeman. Cassidy Freeman yeah. is the. That is the actress. Um, everything is is. I, I understand why it had people who discovered it in 2010 and were like, "Oh, this is really cool." I just wish it. I just wish it was more satisfying. I I this is my second time to watch it. Mm-hmm. I watched it when it first came out. And uh, I watched it with a group, and everyone was bored, but I kept sort of going like, no, just stay with it. I heard it's really good. Like, just stay with it. I heard it's really good. And everybody at the end was like, this sucked. When did it get really good? <laughs> yeah, did I, I fall like, asleep? <laughs> Sorry. Um, and then this time, I kind of knew that going in, and I was like, let me give it another chance. And it was the same. My yeah. reaction to it was the same, which is like, it, it, everything in it is is sound. It's all competent, except it never goes anywhere, and then it's that's it's very frustrating. Agreed. Uh, I think we, yeah. I read so much good stuff about it. I was excited to see it. And yeah, it's just. Was I, this your first time? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so there's a director's commentary, uh, uh, practical blood effects on an indie budget, uh, looking at the special effects. There's a bunch of behind the scenes stuff with the production supervisor and media manager. There's a, a feature on the co-writer and co-director Andy Minton, a f- feature on the other co-writer and co-director Jesse Holland. A Zoom conversation between uh, characters, uh, a a focus on the film's producer. Why does the producer get a special fee? Who gives? I wrote a check. (laughs) I know. Producers do more than that. Um, Yeah, this is just... I mean, I think if you're one of those people who really thinks found footage is like the greatest thing, and I know people who are that way. They're like, that's my favorite type of horror. You might dig on this, but... eh. I liked their second movie. They did uh, The Woman in the Window, I think. Was it The Witch in the Window or The Woman in the Window for Shudder? Um, I liked that one. Hmm. I thought that one was pretty good. I don't remember if I saw that or not. Yeah. Uh, next movie is a 
Chinese uh, Hong Kong Category 3 film, as they call those movies, that aren't for kids, period. They're NC-17 movies. Dr. Lamb. And this is one of these ones I've actually been trying to track down a copy of just to watch for like 25 years. Because I remember iHeart Video had a huge Hong Kong selection, but they had very limited with the Category 3s. I think like the only one I remember that they, they had a copy that was in good condition at all was Naked Killer, which is pretty good. One of the better category threes. But Dr. Lamb was the one, like, for horror movie fans, this was like, holy shit, this is, uh, this is kind of a, as dark and fucked up as the horror movies got at that point, really. Um, and it stars Simon Yam, who was, was and continues to be a pretty big star in Hong Kong cinema. Although he's probably, of all the big stars, the guy most associated with the horror genre. He was in quite a few of them. This came out in 1992. And uh, apparently it's based on a, a cr- cr- uh, true crime that took place in 1982. And at least from what I read about it on the uh, on various websites to, to detailing the events of the crime, it's pretty much dead on what actually happened. Uh, and it's not a pretty story. And the movie, it's no mystery story because the movie starts with the guy being, you know, the killer, uh, Simon Yam, being led away in handcuffs by the police. And it's sort of like a series of flashbacks as they're badgering him and beating him up in the police station, uh, which is a scene that happens in almost every Hong Kong movie with cops in it. <laughs> at least once. I think I probably would have found this more stunning, more startling if I had seen it when, you know, I've actually wanted to back in the day. Now I've seen so much more stuff that it's kind of tame by today's standards. But that being said, it is affecting. It is really dark. And especially knowing how true it is with this guy, like drives a taxi around and is, is killing women. And, and, and it's kind of, it's, ba- it's like a Hen- Henry portrait of a serial killer type movie. Cause it's all from his point of view. I mean, it's, disturbing i thought you know there's there are bits in here that i still find found very stomach churning but i mean if you're going by like the list of most disturbing horror films this won't be on it anymore (laughs) yeah this didn't do much for me to be completely honest i uh it is sort of just like a lengthy interrogation about something that you sort of i mean you get a (laughs) You have the package in your hand. You can see what the movie's going to be about. And then, like, you sit down and that's what the movie's about. And there's not really any additional surprises to it. It was like, oh, okay, right away we're going to have him caught. And he's just going to, like, recount his crimes. And it's like, all right. <laughs> um, I liked some of the way that it was shot. Uh, it was very... It had it. It's very specifically early '90s in in fashion and in the way that it's shot. It's very. There's lots of like. It, it's very hazy with like pink and blue neon in yeah. certain scenes. Lots of rain. Yeah. Um, saxophone. Yeah. <laughs> I, I I dug on that. I dug on the overall style of the movie, but even the the Cat Three films. Some of the ones that I've seen, and I think Doctor Lamb is also like victim to this, is that. Everything feels like a little camp, mm-hmm. just a, just a oh, little especially bit. in this one, They're... and it keeps it from like really feeling disturbing or dark. Well, and sometimes that's to the movie's benefit. Like when we did um, like the Untold oh, Story, yeah, when we did the Untold Story, that was that was more wildly violent than this one. Mm-hmm. But you could not take it seriously, and so it made it more 
bearable. It made it more bearable, but yeah. it was never going for, I think, the level of darkness that this is. Yeah, this is. I think that was more aware that it had a toe in camp. Yeah. This one, I think, is supposed to be serious, but some of the cops and some of the acting and stuff like that, I found so goofy. Yeah, they're, they're, and even some of the effects work, I thought, was yeah. so fakey. That I was like, this is just not working for me on any level. There, it's like screwball comedy with the cops almost. You know, there's like just running jokes with their behavior and things like, why is this in this movie? Yeah. But I mean, I, this was not my bag. And I, and mm-hmm. I, I approached it with an open mind. I expected something different. And ultimately, I thought the tone of it was kind of janky, just all over the place. And it, it ultimately, it neither amused me nor did it nor did it disturb me. It was just sort of like an, you know, it was a, 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 a style exercise, much like Flatliners was mm-hmm. uh, in in '90s style. Hmm. Um, but yeah, it didn't. This didn't do. This didn't do shit for me. I, I actually did like it, but um, then again, just like I said, '90s Hong Kong stuff is kind of like that's my baby. Well, if I would have seen it back in the day, I, maybe my opinion would be different. I just. It's weird the stuff they're choosing to bring out from this era as opposed to the stuff that people say they actually want. Like, okay, yeah. we get this, but not any of the Mr. Vampire series, which is hugely popular, or Encounters of the Spooky Kind, or Project A, or things like this. You're like, where are those movies that everybody likes? Instead, it's like, here's the most disturbing shit from this period. <laughs> like, no, I want the most fun stuff with, like, Sam Hong and shit. What yeah. are you doing? Anyway, this comes with a commentary by... uh Art Edinger and Bruce Holacek, uh, two specialists in, in category three and Asian film. Lamb to the Slaughter interview with filmmaker Gilbert Poe, uh, who made the film Three Times the Fear, with film critic James Mudge talking about the golden age of category three, which is a pretty interesting 20 minute piece. These are what I look for in bonus features stuff, like in this type of thing. Like, ooh, tell me about the history of Are these recycled thing. from that other? They're not the same one. Okay. Yeah. Uh, cut and run film academic, uh, Sean Tierney, uh, who goes by the name of the silver spleen talking about the film atomic TV interview with Simon Yam, which is an archival piece and then trailers an insert booklet and uh slip cover. All right. Let's it's move It's a great on. package. It is. Uh, 88 films have done a terrific job, like yeah. coming out of nowhere and suddenly being, Hey, we're an important part of the, the home, uh, video conversation now. Yeah. I like their, I like. I like their features and I like their packaging. I like their vibe. Yeah, me too. Well, next we have from Arrow, another chapter in their Giallo Essentials collections, which is one way of sort of... Essentials. Make bunny ears with your fingers when you say that, uh, Right, Chris. because like <laughs> these feel like, well, when we bought some of the films we wanted, it had to be part of a big package deal with a bunch of shit that we didn't really want as much. But we're like, well, we own it, and so we're, I guess we're going to fix it up, and we should call it an essential. <laughs> we should make it where it's collectible and put a whole series of mm-hmm. collector's sets. And some of them are pretty good, and some of them are, this is the most, of the sets they put out so far. Which isn't to say I didn't have some fun with it. There's one in here that almost was good, the one in set in the theater. Oh, I was like, this is a setup for a pretty cool. Oh, okay. <laughs> was almost there. Uh, but like, I mean, 
I mean, like, usually they each one of these have at least one really good one in it. This, I would not say, has that. This has Smile Before Death, The Weapon, The Hour, and The Motive, and The Killer Reserved Nine Seats, which, like I said, is probably the, the best one in here. Um, John, uh, of these three that are all 70s Giallo films, yes. which was your favorite? Um, I think that... So there were two that were tied, but for different reasons. I found the most, the most watchable one to be, uh, God, smile, smile before death, smile before death. It's like a telenovela. It's about an evil stepfather who wants to kill his way to, uh, to fortune <laughs> and, and the hired guns that he uses to get to the top. Um, it was very much, very, very soap opera, but oh, I, totally. but I liked the actors in it and I thought that it was shot well, like it was put together really well, um, has a nice widescreen compositions in it and stuff. And I, I found myself the most interested in that one from just a, just watching a movie film narrative standpoint. Well, that the, was, the one, one that's had a nice twist yeah. is the best thing about it. Like the twist is like. You could, I could honestly not be surprised if someone did not see it coming. I mean, I did, but yeah. <laughs> I was like, yeah, that was, that was cool. And the girl who plays the, the daughter that comes in has this weird sort of Christy McNichol vibe to her. <laughs> Very yeah. naturalistic. I, yeah, I liked the actors. I liked the way it was shot. I liked all the surface elements. I, I, I did not find it scarier than an average episode of like General Hospital. Right. But other than that, um, and then kind of tied and I, I don't, like throw around the remake word a lot, but the one that's called, uh, what are these titles? The something, the something, the, the something, weapon, and the, the hour and the motive, the weapon, the hour and the motive. That is about a priest having an affair with, uh, two nuns and he ends up dead. And as the police start to investigate, the witness is a boy who happens to watch their trysts through a hole in the wall, which creates some conflict as well. Cause who wants to, be the person to run around and tell everybody, oh, I was watching them hump through a hole in the wall. Right. Um, I felt like this was really ripe for remake. I thought hmm. all the elements in it were sort of like, it was, it was intriguing. It was an intriguing setup and an intriguing story. And I was like, someone should remake this because this is boring. <laughs> like, <laughs> this is, this is all really it's good not- other than the fact that I, I'm not enjoying it. Um, <laughs> so. Uh, I would, I'd like to see somebody come along and take this material and like remake it. Now, when it comes to the, my least favorite was, uh, the, I was, I reserve nine seats. The killer reserve nine seats. I'm the opposite. That was my favorite of the three. It was very Agatha Christie. It felt like a thousand things I'd seen before. Yeah. Uh, I guess there is familiarity in it. I mean, it will feel like, it will feel like something you've watched. I think it's just that the other two are kind of dull. And this one was the one who was like, well, at least shit is happening. <laughs> shit is happening. That is true. <laughs> which the guy invites a group of his friends to uh, visit a theater inside his villa, which they end up all locked inside of. And there's some weird dude wandering around who's like, they're like, oh, I thought you invited him who appears to be like a mortal or some shit. Uh, and then they start dying one at a time. And it re- as this is happening, it reveals all the affairs everyone is having with each other. And there's lots of sex scenes and there's lots of very giallo. The- this woman wasn't naked before she started to get murdered, but now she's naked. <laughs> and I think out of the three, it's probably the one that has the most typically giallo 
associated elements oh, in it. The other because two, these I, felt really tenuous. I mean, I know they yeah. said giallo in the packaging, but it was yeah. kind of like other two. I eh, hesitate to even call giallo. Yeah, yeah. Like this one is like giallo double underline double exclamation yeah. point. But you know, again, not one of the better ones. There's, it's just that I'm going. I'm enjoying this for like the silliness and all the things I love about Giallo, like the tropes that I do enjoy. But yeah, it's dumb and kind of predictable and, and it makes lots of, it zigs when it should zag many, many times. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this is the weakest of the sets so far, unfortunately. But if you're still like a hardcore lover of like Italian films from the seventies, I mean, they're all watchable. They're just not terribly recommendable that's all and each one comes with a few special features but i don't know man i i I think that uh i think we're running low on what's left to repackage from the giallo and uh, polizai era the smile i cannot remember the name of any of these movies smile before death has like the song that plays in it that sounds like someone sneezing where they're like achoo 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 (laughs) like over and over (laughs) I I don't remember. <laughs> I must have blacked it out. <laughs> Anytime that song came on in the movie, I would start laughing because it just sounded like someone was singing a cartoon sneeze. <laughs> uh, sure. I don't remember. Anyway, uh, we're going to move on to Donna Floor and her two husbands, which I know you're like, I've never heard of that. What is that? It sounds boring. Well, actually, this is a 1976 Portuguese film that was a pretty big deal when it came out. It won a whole bunch of awards. It was the most successful film in Brazilian history up until just recently when, uh, I believe, um, Elite Force came out and broke the Mm -hmm. record, which is also a very good film. Uh, and there was a 1982 American remake of this called Kiss Me Goodbye with Sally Field, James Caan, and Jeff Bridges in leading oh, roles. I didn't know that. I, yeah, I've never seen it. But, never um, even heard of that. And then if in uh, Port- uh, Portugal, there was a 2017 remake as well. But this one is one of those I only got to my attention because a friend of mine, I think you know Matt Shiverdecker, mm-hmm. was yeah. saying, oh my God, this is coming out. I haven't seen this since I was a kid. I've been looking for a copy everywhere. I'm so happy it's coming out. It's like, So I looked it up. I was like, oh, well, I guess I should probably... Ask for a copy of it. And I'm kind of glad I did, although I wish this had been a little faster pace. It's, it's a romantic comedy that reminded me of, you know, that I think what's it called? Truly Madly Deeply with uh, Alan Rickman, yeah. where he's like the guy who dies and then comes back because the wife just won't get over it. And then yeah. she starts to realize, oh, God, all he does is hang around the house with his ghost friends to dirtying up the place and the whole deal is, well, you need to get over it and move on, you know, move on with your life. This is like that, except the opposite. <laughs> and like a lot of this, like when we meet uh, uh, Donna Floor at the beginning, her husband, he's just a party animal. He just goes out and parties until he literally parties till he drops. He just yeah. dies of a heart attack while partying. And everybody seems to uh, uh, be like, you need to get on because he was a loser. Like, why would you? He was terrible to you. He was abusive to you. Yada, yada. Um, and we, the first half of this movie is basically going through an extended flashback that and eventually she meets another guy who's treats her great and he's very responsible. But the problem is, is as we see, Donna needs things, different things from different people. And she has the security and the safety and the respect from her new husband, but he is boring as hell and white bread in bed. Whereas a previous husband 
was really exciting and like, you know, unpredictable and funny as hell and was um, just incredible in bed. So what happens? Well, his ghost comes back <laughs> and starts fucking the hell out of her. This is a weird idea for a movie. I can see why it really charmed the hell out of people when this came out. Uh, yeah, this is, this is fun. I think the, um, the balance is a little, there's a lot of setup. Mm. And I think that's kind of the issue with it is sort of like the ghost stuff of him coming back is sort of all kind of crammed in the last 20 minutes or so. Yeah. There's so much setup establishing who he is. And then, and then really, honestly, for it to come back around to him, there's too, it's too long to watch her courtship and romance with the new guy. Mm-hmm. Like if anything should be abbreviated, it should be that stuff. Cause you could shorthand his boringness. We don't have to necessarily see it in action. Right. Um, so the balance is a little off because it's sort of like, all right, we're going to spend a good 45 minutes getting to know the husband, the first husband. We're going to spend a good 45 minutes getting to know the second husband. And then we're going to like race to the finish and introduce like <laughs> the, the thing that we've hooked, the hook that we've sold this movie on, right. which is like, Oh, she's still having a relationship with her dead husband. Um, we're going to cram all that at the very, very end. And it's sort of like, oh, I wish it had time to like, yeah, breathe. Uh, and that's the thing where I'm like, I'm not surprised there's a remake and, uh, like, well, two re- remakes. Yeah. And it feels like, yeah, this is right for it because it's a great idea. And, and it was really well cast, this thing. And, you know, it's very sexy, but you're right. It's like, why is the most interesting part not to the last 20 minutes? Yeah. <laughs> um, is it Sonia Braga? Sonia that, Braga yeah, was lot, just gorgeous yeah, back then. A lot then. of people recognize Sonia Braga. Yeah, yeah. No, she was a, kind of a big actress. Um, she was actually nominated for Best Leading Newcomer at the BAFTAs, and uh, this film was nominated for Best Foreign Language Film at the Golden Globe Awards when it came out. But yeah, I, I thought this was... It's cute. It really is genuinely cute, but it's... Colorful, too. It's very colorful, but I, yeah, it's, it's out of balance. It's uneven and it, it feels, you feel the length of it to be sure, which is unfortunate considering all the stuff in here that actually is really good. Um, and there are a commentary by the director, which is in English, um, uh, behind the scenes for about seven and a half minutes, uh, archival and Portuguese with English subtitles and then the trailer. So not a lot here, but I mean, I do think this is well worth watching, especially if somebody is a film director looking to make a a fun romantic comedy. And this could be a great opportunity for a remake that learns how to, uh, to move the parts around efficiently. Yeah. Uh, my literally my, I think my favorite thing in the set this week is this total. What the fuck is this? I've never even heard of this, nor did I ask for it movie. They sent me on DVD called Jesus kit. What a weird, where did this come from? movie? (laughs) Uh, and you know, it's Brazilian. It's a wacky kind of screwball comedy. It's basically, Somebody saw Barton Fink and really, really, really loved it to the point that they made a movie that has a lot in common with Barton Fink, young writer in a hotel struggling to write a piece that he's agreed to write, write uh, and wacky characters uh, abound. But it also involves Barton Fink and the Coen brothers in, t- in terms of their existence into the storyline as well. It's, it's very, very odd. Um, but I found it deeply funny. Uh, and it's, 
it's zinging the government, the fascist, you know, fascist government in Brazil, uh, the class wars. Um, it's, it's amazing they kind of got away with it, quite frankly. But, uh, the novelist in question, Eugenio, uh, he's been writing this series of books. You know, they're just pulp novels, like pulp westerns about this one guy named Jesus Kid. Uh, and he, that's all he really wants to do. He doesn't really care if anybody else cares about it or not. But the new government's kind of like, yeah, we don't really approve of these, but what we really want you to do is write a biography of our beloved leader. Um, and he doesn't want to do that. He's <laughs> no interest in that whatsoever. Um, but he also, uh, gets an opportunity to do something else. Uh, he might be more interested in and he gets locked up, uh, in a, the Swank Hotel to write a script about a writer who is going insane in search of his next idea, which is pretty much exactly what he, it, what's happening here. And it's just too much cash for him to turn him, turn it down ultimately. Uh, but yeah, it's, I think the point where his figure from the book shows up and just starts killing people occasionally when they are like being like, cause the, the people from the government are stalking him. When everyone gets too close, the Jesus kid shows up and kills them and goes, Oh, partner, you need to mm-hmm. get your shit together. Um, but he's still imaginary, I guess, cause he talks about himself like he's not real. It's a weird film, but I laugh pretty much through this whole thing. I thought it was kind of fun. It was entertaining. I was surprised going in a letterbox. I think a lot of people, a lot of, uh, Brazilians, uh, were given this like one star, one and a half stars. Uh-huh. I don't know what the might be political reasons. I don't know what the reasons are, but I was a little shocked at the ratings on, uh, on letterbox. I thought this was, I thought this was perfectly entertaining. It is, it does get meta. I thought the acting was good. Um, you know, it doesn't really, uh, break the mold in regards to stories about beleaguered screenwriters. I think that's something that screenwriters like to write about. Uh, I think it's also, I think part of what it works though is that it's self aware of that yeah. fact, you know, that's like, we know, here's another one of these. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I really like the actors, you know, for all the kind of characters that are in there, some are only in there for, for small moments. I thought everybody makes a really strong impression. So it ends up being like a really good ensemble. I, I enjoyed it. Yeah, no, I mean, it is fun. Um, the guy who plays the gunfighter is like, I mean, if you're, is, is startlingly good looking as he, I guess he should be. It's really familiar and I couldn't place it. Yeah. Um, I don't know if he was, I didn't look him up, but I was like, and I've seen his face before. No, he is actually, yeah, he, he is, um, Maroon. I don't know his, his, uh, last name, but, uh, he was, he played Pontius Pilate in a Brazilian version of Jesus of Nazareth. I don't know. But yeah, I, I didn't see that. A, one. No, me neither. <laughs> uh, he's a good-looking guy, though. That's pointedly so. And I, you know, everybody's. Yeah, this is this is fun enough, and the characters are wacky enough. I thought this was going to get Agatha Christie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I thought this was going to turn into a murder mystery or something. It's got that kind of goofy level to it. But unfortunately, no real bonus features here. But um, yeah, well worth tracking down and get the DVD of this. It, man, check it out. Now I know John was not crazy about Salt and Pepper or its uh, sequel. One more time, we're not referring to spices here. It's, it's time, like time, not not like the spice time. Um, the nineteen sixty eight British comedy film Salt and Pepper, uh, directed by Richard Donner. That's right. Uh, <laughs> starring Sammy Davis Jr. and Peter Lawford, who were you know two of the Rat Pack. What? Peter Lawford, who is my age in Salt and Pepper. (laughs) (laughs) 
That'll make you feel old for sure. Good God. Yeah, I was looking the other day. I was like, wow, I'm not that much younger than than uh, the original bartender in Cheers. <laughs> who was playing a very elderly man. Anyway, uh, this film was successful enough that it, it's they made a sequel one more time that was directed by Jerry Lewis. So you can imagine how it has a very, very different feel. Very different movies. But uh, Lawford and, uh, and uh, Davis are Pepper and Salt, who own a nightclub together in London. Uh, they're best friends. Uh, the police don't like it, like them at all and is always trying to, like, this guy, Inspector Crab, played by Michael Bates, is always trying to catch him doing something. I think that's all this guy ever played is police guys who are trying to catch pe- people doing something. Uh, he's probably best known for um, playing the chief prison guard in A Clockwork Orange. That's why, that's where yeah. I was like, it was driving me crazy. I had to pause the movie. Where do I know this guy from? I was like, ah, that 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 is it. Anyway, uh, so one night... Uh, Lawford finds this Asian girl on the floor of the club. Uh, he assumes she's just fucked up, uh, and, uh, he tries to make a date with her, and he's fucked up enough to think she's responding. It turns out she's dying, um, and all this turn into just the tip of the iceberg of, like, a series of events that's going on with people who are trying to overthrow the British government with the girl being the the keystone to unlocking the mystery and these are these are not spies these two characters they're swinging londonites that are sort of goofy friends who just want to party but they get caught up in spy shenanigans i actually thought this was kind of delightful outside of a certain amount of to be expected racism (laughs) yeah it was a little too uh there's a weird thing in the 60s specifically that i don't think any other decade quite no other decade quite does this thing where there's people in their 40s and 50s who are like, hey, I'm part of youth culture and I'm <laughs> super hip and with it now. Right. And it kind of has that where it's like this is squarely aimed at youth culture and stars to old people. <laughs> yeah. To people like this is at the tail end of the big rat pack. Yeah. Like, and you're like, and not even the most popular members yeah. of the rat pack. Um. I just thought this was just this. The first one never came together for me. I thought it was just sort of messy. It might be the worst Richard Donner movie I've ever seen <laughs> because he usually is such a sure hand. This felt like a hodgepodge of a bunch of different things, satisfying a lot of different uh, desires for whatever the movie was. Like, is it a vanity project for Sammy Davis Jr.? Is it an action movie? Is it a comedy? Is it a spy movie? Is it a, you know, it just, it, it, and nothing ever, to me, nothing ever gelled into whatever it was supposed to be. Uh, it felt very, very, I realize it's of the time, but it felt very dated in a way that was not, uh, approachable. Um, yeah, I didn't, I did not enjoy the first one. Okay. But now the second one I still think is a misfire, mm-hmm. but I think it's a more interesting misfire because it's essentially a Jerry Lewis hassle in the castle movie about like it, it's it, the old, that old chestnut about a guy having a long lost relative who's royalty that looks exactly like him in this yeah. case, Peter Lawford and the, the rich old Lord dies and Peter Lawford's nightclub character owner takes his place, but tries to keep up the charade that he's the actual original uh, British Lord. Meanwhile, he keeps a secret from 
uh, Salt, played by Sammy Davis Jr., who then does nothing but discarded <laughs> Jerry Lewis routines for like an hour and a half for the movie. But he's good at them. He's pretty good at them. Some of them are inexplicable, but I feel like this period of Jerry Lewis, like early 70s, a lot of the shtick was inexplicable. Like yeah. you, He kind of already had his golden years. And then you get things in this where he's mugging over things that no one would ever mug over, like, oh, the dresser's really big. And so he mugs when he looks at the dresser, and the bed is really big, so it cuts to him like he looks at the bed and goes cross-eyed because of how big the bed is. It's like, I get that. I get it, but like, we've seen dressers that size before. Like, it's not so big, and I've seen beds that size. So there's a lot of like inexplicable moments like that. Now, for every six of those, there's one that maybe kind of lands. Yeah. But it's so shotgun blast filled with mugging and asides and, and literally Jerry Lewis material grafted onto Sammy Davis Jr. Yeah. This one is, is not even, remotely doesn't feel like the same genre no uh it doesn't feel connected to the first film almost no, at all no <laughs> uh it feels like a whole different beast and i liked this one marginally more if only because it felt more sure-footed in what it wanted to be even if what it wanted to be was like an old corny like uh mix up in the castle movie right which is what it, which is what it is i mean i agree i kind of like this i mean i did genuinely like parts of the original i, I love the swinging 60s goofy spy adventure thing it's one of my favorite yeah. little subgenres, and it's a lesser one but i still had fun with it i mean there's even a point where he's got a car with like trick stuff in it they, they yeah. get to play with but uh the second one i don't know i mean like i'm not the world's biggest jerry lewis fan but i do kind of I like Sammy Davis Jr. I've always kind of liked Sammy, especially when he's being funny. And he kind of takes really naturally to this material. And he's good at it. In fact, I think he's better at mugging for the Jerry Lewis type bits than Jerry Lewis is. You know, I laughed every time he was doing, yeah. <laughs> you know, like I, I had fun with those parts. It's a much dumber movie. No question. Yeah. I don't even but, know if I would say that it's better, quote unquote, objectively better than the first one. I just liked it more. <laughs> and there's like a running bit where like, there's a secret door that leads downstairs where apparently is where Frankenstein is happening and Dracula and what have you. And I yeah, was there's like, a cameo what? by Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing that yeah. I was unaware of where Christopher <laughs> Lee plays. Dracula and Peter Cushing plays Frankenstein for yeah. a shot. Yeah. I was like, why was this here? Yeah. I was like, because they were in the studio next door? <laughs> I, don't <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I don't know. I love the tagline for the second movie, by the way. It may have one of the best taglines for any movie poster I've ever seen. The tagline for One More Time is, never before were they together again for the second time. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so I don't think there's going to be a, a remake of Salt and Pepper, is no. all I'm saying. I think, uh, but we are overdue for an In Like Flynn remake, is all I'm saying. Cast it. Or, or The President's Analyst, even better. Who you ca is it Kevin Hart and Colin Farrell? Who's, who is, who's Salt and Pepper now? Oh, God. Cast I, it. I wouldn't even want to. Are you kidding me? <laughs> Two slightly older guys who are running a swinging nightclub in, in, in London. One of them's actually British, one of them's American. I don't know, dude. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> I don't need to see it, I guess. Okay. Um, so our last film this week is a film uh, both of us, John and I, have seen many, many times. Um, I remember going to see this in the theater when it originally came out because I was such a big Star Trek fan. And, and I remember eating the Happy Meal on which the film was based. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which was my introduction to Star <laughs> Trek, by the way. Oh, 
the, the Happy Meal. The Happy Meal was. Yeah. yeah. I was fascinated by the artwork on it. And I huh. and when those Happy Meals were out for the motion picture, which I which I think historically those were the first Happy Meals that came in those boxes with the Golden Arch candles. Yeah, maybe so. And I didn't know that until hmm. recently. But I remember those boxes specifically. I was so fascinated by the painting and the artwork on those boxes that I kept those boxes for a long time. And if um, you still had them, they probably were something. Yeah, probably so. Yeah. Weirdly, Happy Meal shit is 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 worse stuff. Yeah. Like those glasses that if you actually use will break after the second time you put them in a dishwasher. Yeah, some of those are worth money. I still have the Star Trek II Wrath of Khan one, one of those. I've got all the Star Trek three or four glasses at the house. One of the later sequels. And I, think so I either were, have three or four. I think those were Burger King, if I'm not mistaken, not McDonald's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, how did we get off on that? Uh, Star Trek The Motion Picture is being re-released yet again, this time on 4K, but not just this one, although this is the main one we're talking about because it's the only one they sent me. Thanks a lot, guys. Uh, because they've re-released all six of the original films on 4K. Although, as John said, who has purchased all of them himself... This was by far the most sizable, like, remix fix-up. Yeah, they gave this one, they rolled out the red carpet for this one. Not only did they update the effects even from the early 2000s when they updated the effects nearly 20 years ago, um, they updated them again. Mm -hmm. And the film quality, like, the 4K is impeccable. Now, 2 through 6 look good. They look better than they ever have before. But whatever care and craft went into preserving and, and creating the 4K for motion picture, it feels like more effort was given for that than, than 2 through 6, for whatever reason. I mean, now you said they even upgraded the effects here as well. Yeah, they did. did. They did not do that for the others no. then. Okay. Which no. is just so bizarre to me. And I've been watching this happen ever since this movie came out of like... The Star Trek and Paramount Brass treat this like this is the this is their golden child of the Star Trek movies. Literally no one else in the whole world feels that way. I mean, it came out and we're all like, yeah, it's pretty. We get it. You were going for like a 2001 vibe. It was literally the first movie that was based on a television show to ever be made. So no one really knew what was going to happen. Um, and they wanted to give it such a different vibe than the TV show because they wanted to say, no, this is serious now, folks. I get it, the reasoning, but what you made was a very long, kind of boring movie that, unless you're really, really, really into, like, hard sci-fi, is probably not going to do it for you. As opposed to the rip-roaring sequel that is Wrath of Khan. I mean, I even... Depending on my mood, I can enjoy five, watching five more than one. <laughs> and it's probably the worst of the original films. I appreciate one. I really like the story. I think that the, the central mystery of what's going on is fascinating and mm -hmm. it has a good answer as to what the mystery is. Yeah. Uh, like I say, I don't I think, think it's a the bad movie. It's yeah. just not for most audiences. I think the issue with it is one of, Allowing every single moment to breathe, no matter whether it needs to or not. Everything has a lot of space. Mm -hmm. So no matter if it's a conversation or an action scene or the Enterprise pulling out from docking yeah. or something bad has happened or something good has happened, everything is given like a very deliberate weight mm -hmm. and everything is like, I've got to cough. That's okay. You cough. <laughs> there, it, it's given a lot of weight, and Sorry. I don't feel like the character stuff works as well uh, that they try to develop with you know the the original cast. 
until two when you really start getting right in the beginning of the whole like am i getting too old to do this now am oh, i see. like which i found very like had a lot of weight and really effective um and really plays into the i mean the, there's an emotional core to that story that totally works and i thought that the biggest flaw with one is that that the emotional stuff never really connects so this was the first time for whatever reason and I don't know why, because I've seen them film a few times. And I think really my mind has been preoccupied with the V'ger storyline mm-hmm. at the heart of it. Basically, there's a uh, a big thing in space called V'ger that is uh, making ships disappear. And um, the Enterprise is, you know, is checking it out. Mm-hmm. That's that's the And then the mystery is, what is V'ger? Um I didn't notice Spock's arc and I had never as many times as I've seen this he he doesn't he is trying to become full Vulcan and make himself completely devoid of emotion and when it opens he's on Vulcan and he actually fails the the, the test that would allow him to come to become full Vulcan mm-hmm. so he comes aboard the ship and he's upset about that and being with his friends certainly doesn't help the issue because now he's surrounded by friends, which means that his more human side is going to come out and he is trying to not let that happen at this time. He wants to be, be full Vulcan mm-hmm. and his arc in the movie. I had never noticed when he mind melds with V'ger and he realizes how important emotion is to existence mm-hmm. like that V'ger operates on pure logic. And because of that is a, an emotionally, is a stunted being that can't comprehend things because it can't comprehend emotion. Right. And so his, he, he comes out of the other side of that encounter going like Maybe the emotion is healthy and it's important. And it's part of our, it's part of our, our regular interaction as living human, as living beings that actually bleeds into the second one mm-hmm. pretty well because of the way that he interacts with Kirk, especially in his death. Spoiler. I mean, the first and then they reset him because he's reborn and right. all that, and he has the to first kind of relearn four everything. Kind of one continuous yeah. story, but I'm I for some reason Spock's arc in one. I I, I heard it when it happened in other movies. Like mm-hmm. I mean, in, excuse me, when I watched it in other viewings, I I heard it. I heard the dialogue. It never clicked for me that like oh Spock has a very definite storyline in this movie, which is starting from a place of wanting to be pure logic discovering the flaw in being pure logic and coming out the other side going mm-hmm. like, Oh, I should be an emotional being. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how that passed me by in, in previous viewings. Hmm. I, it just did. I mean, that's certainly the weightiest of the human storylines yeah. here, other than what they're trying to do with the two new bridge members, Decker and, uh, Ilya, uh, play with a just, Drop dead gorgeous Persis Kambata, which if you ever seen her in, in like pictures of her with hair, it's such a shame she's bald here because she had this most beautiful lustrous hair, right? Just like a mega hottie playing a Delton who, uh, apparently they said, who just goes, she, it's like being vegan on her play. Like, yeah, I don't sleep with people. I, I, I don't have sex. She just tells everybody. <laughs> like, what is that? <laughs> I would keep that to myself, but it seems like she really wants to sleep with, uh, William Decker, who was supposed to be the new captain of the Enterprise until, sh- uh, Kirk shows up and puts his, puts his dick down, says, no, you're now my, my assistant, uh, which he doesn't like. And I get that. Like, there's a lot of him constantly questioning everything that's happening. 
And you're supposed to be like, okay, well, it's partially because he's really annoyed that he's been demoted for this whole thing. Uh, but it also makes him look completely incompetent. He never gets to make one, uh, he never gets to make one executive decision. Yeah. He gets to make a personal decision at the end. Yeah. But on the ship, he never gets to like solve a crisis no. or give a command. He's never or, right about anything. Yeah. In fact, he's so wrong about things that you're like, no, shut up, sit down. <laughs> it's like, expect that. Shut up, Wesley. <laughs> Going back to the editing and like how everything kind of breathes, I think like a good example when I watched it this time is there's really, like, for instance, the transporter accident scene. Mm-hmm. The scene has no bearing on the plot of the movie. It's probably a five-minute scene. And it doesn't do anything other than it's supposed to reinforce that the Enterprise hasn't gotten fully checked out before it leaves. Right. That's really the only thing it's supposed to portray. Yeah, but it's, same- a lo- it's a long scene, and it's never really discussed again. Yeah. And there's moments like that. Like, when they first arrive at V'ger, this was interesting to me, and I watched it. They... They arrive, they walk down the platform, they go down there. I think they hear a voice and it cuts to every character and the camera holds for like the count of four, maybe Kirk, one, two, three, four, Spock, one, two, three, four, <laughs> okay. McCoy. And there's like five people down there. Yeah. And then they start talking. And I was like, from an editing standpoint, I was like, what was the purpose of them walking down there and us getting cutaways of each of their faces mm-hmm. until they started like talking about what they were looking at down there. But it was indicative of how every scene has that spacing to it. Every yeah. scene is sort of just like, it's too relaxed and yeah. it makes for a movie that feels bloated and overinflated and just, yeah. and, and boring to use the word. There's plenty of scenes in here yeah. that just don't, as you said, don't add anything to it. I was, you were talking about the transporter. I thought more specifically and which serves the exact same purpose. Oh yeah. The ship's not totally working. The wormhole sequence, yeah. which is so slow. It's so exciting. slow. It's trying to use this slowdown effect with like blurs to make it look, Oh, it's all spacey and sci-fi. No, it's just, you can do that with your phone. <laughs> it was just like, what is, what is this? Why is this still happening? <laughs> it's a yeah. long, dull, this we you already established this. There's no reason for this to happen. Scene. Everyone has slow conversations. Man, the hell! <laughs> They're like it's so. Oh no, yeah. that is the moment that Decker does one thing right. Remember? Oh, does yeah, he? Yeah, because he's like, no, no, don't use phasers. Fire the plasma. Torpedoes, oh, I was which wrong. Is just you're right. Techno you're right. babble yeah, shit. Okay. Yeah, you're right. He gets to do something. Maybe that's why that scene is something. in the film because someone pointed out. Wow, he's kind of useless in this whole movie. Yeah. Uh, and well, even fuck Stephen Collins, anyways. Why? Oh, Stephen Collins is like a. Is he convicted child molester? Oh, really? Yeah, I did not yeah, know. Stephen that. Collins is uh, is disgraced, sir. Oh my god, Stephen Collins is uh, yeah, an, early, right. an early an uh, early adopter of cancel culture against multiple minors. Yep. Oh my god, I had no idea. Yep, yep, yep. Well, I'm glad I ha- hated him in this movie because <laughs> he is really awful in yep. this movie. A Persis Combata d- deserves someone better to join th- them in yes. uh, V'ger's eternity, whatever. Even though that whole ending, I was like, what does this even mean? <laughs> what just happened? Like, I mean, I get it on the metaphor, but what literally happened, I'm no idea. <laughs> yeah. And there's a lot of like, this is a being of pure logic. And yet 
the recreated robot of Persis Kambata clearly still feels lust and emotion. Uh, okay. Because they had saved her, the, the construct, they had saved the original patterns of memory and emotion that she had. I guess. And so it was, it, it was going to take Decker because Ilya. So here's my theory. Ilya as a single entity remained unfulfilled because they just had Ilya's memory, but there was no fulfillment to whatever. If if Ilya had longing towards uh, Decker, there was no fulfillment of that or reciprocation because they only could go off of what Ilya had. They had to absorb Decker so that they could have both pieces of the set and look at love as one thing and to understand it instead of just the longing by itself. I guess. Still doesn't. Do I get a no prize? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> okay. Uh, and, you know, aside from this being the fixed up version, but the effects and the higher quality uh, 4K, um, there is some new stuff here in the special features, including a new audio commentary from the Director's Edition crew, along with all the original uh, legacy uh, commentaries. There's a text commentary by Michael and Denise Okuda. I love it when they do those on things, because you're like, oh, that way I can watch the movie, hear the sound, and... Mm see the little you know it's like pop-up video yeah <laughs> like i wish every commentary was available as a text commentary um and then uh you get a second disc a standard blu-ray that comes with brand new legacy features uh an eight-part documentary called the human adventure which is a very odd choice to name it because it's largely about the technical side of this film and the special effects and the to some degree about this, how they, what, what they chose to change and why and what the decision making that was involved originally with some of the choices, especially with the, just the design inside V'ger was like a huge part of what this is about. I mean, it's interesting, but it's not terribly thrilling stuff. It's more like, okay, if you're a real big tech geek for this sort of thing, this is fill in the dots, uh, like, just those details that you want. I mean, let's face it. There's been about every extra you can make for the original six Star Trek movies at this point. They've been re-released so many times. So it's like, okay, we're, we're, we're desperately trying to come up with yet more stuff. There's three deleted scenes in here, none of which are really necessary or add much to it at all. Effects tests, costume tests, and computer display graphics uh, images. And then the all the original legacy features are here, uh, which are quite good, which go deep into the whole history of like, how did this movie even happen? You know, uh, what happened to phase two that was supposed to be first? There was going to be a new TV show that was more expensive that brought everybody back, but had some new characters who their concepts ended up being sort of remodeled into the animated series mm -hmm. eventually. We're like, like, oh, those characters, that's what kind of what they were going to be. Uh, originally, Persis Kambata was being talked about to be one of the regular cast crew on uh, phase two. But anyway, the whole point is totally worth watching. That is all the storyboards, uh, a lot more additional scenes and deleted scenes, uh, the original TV spots. I mean, so this is decidedly the best version of this movie, but I kind of wish that they had just focused on Wrath of Khan instead, <laughs> again, which is by far the better movie. And anyone who thinks otherwise is, um, I would love to hear a non-long-winded explanation as to why. You know, I kind of got, this is the first time... And I'm gonna I'm gonna act big brain for a minute and uh, put on a little cartoon graduation cap and act <laughs> like I know what I'm talking about and raise one finger in the air as if I'm smart. <laughs> it's the first time I've ever equated the three movies to the first three seasons of the original series, hmm. where the first one is kind of getting its footing. It's more serious sci-fi. Um, the episodes are a little bit slower paced, 
Hmm. Um, and it's trying to sort of, what is this show? So in, in one, it is sort of like, what is the future? What is the motion picture version of Star Trek? What does that look like? Um, and it is more reserved and more scientific. The second season has more colorful, more action packed episodes. The, the, it feels more established. The characters know who they are and what mm-hmm. they want to do. And Star Trek two is kind of like season two. Yeah. Season three is a little wonky. The episodes aren't as good. Everything feels a little bit cheaper. The characters are there, but sometimes they're given too long of a leash in acting, and some of it's like really hammy. <laughs> and Star Trek three, <laughs> Search for Spock, has some of the negative qualities and positive qualities of the third season of Star Trek. So for the first time, I was kind of like, oh, I think the seasons are kind of like analogous to the first three movies in a way. <laughs> That's interesting. Um, so I will now take off my cartoon, uh, <laughs> wise owl graduation cap. Um, the other thing, this is the first time I think this movie is really, I, you, there's these movies that you like watch and you're in the mood to watch them. Like I haven't seen Star Trek, the motion picture in a long time. You put it on and it's like, it's familiar. You're not really like into it. It's just like on, you've yeah. seen it so many times. It's like, whatever. This was the first time that it really clicked into place for me. I think I l- really like this. I mean, I and definitely like it more than it, I don't. But. It reminded me of when I saw Alien on Blu-ray, and I had never seen Alien on the big screen. And there had always been a part of me that kind of wondered like, what it was like to, to watch Alien on the big screen. Mm. And there was an aspect to watching this in 4K on my big TV in my living room that I was like, it felt... I think the presentation is so impeccable that it felt closer to that it it's I know it's an undefinable thing but it felt closer to what I could imagine the theatrical experience to be like mm-hmm. there right in front of my face on the big screen in 4K beautiful um and it it actually made me sad that I missed the theatrical screenings of the 4K that happened back in the spring mm-hmm. that's way too big of a window between <laughs> the release of the home video and when they're trying to promote it. But apparently right. they had, they had screenings of this like huh. back in like April. And I, I was did like, not know ah, that. I would have liked to have seen that. Like, hmm. I'd like to see some of these images. Yeah. Like just larger than life. Uh, um, I think I, the other thing that's really key to bring up here is that as, you know, iconic as the score to the original Star Trek series is, this is the score that it became the defining iconic Star Trek score. Mm-hmm. Um, the theme to this went on to be just the theme for Star Trek Next Generation. It's yeah. exactly the same. And it's everything that's been since for themes are, except for Enterprise, which has made the terrible idea to do like a, a ballad. <laughs> I still don't know what they were thinking there. Um, it's like youth but that, group every other theme music. has leap motifs from this theme yeah. in it, you know? So it's like, oh, okay. And it's kind of neat to listen to it if you like really love Next Generation, especially, and go, oh, it's like the longer version of the Next Generation theme. Yeah, I loved it this time. I have appreciated it in the past, and I think this time I loved it. I think the criticisms still stand. I, th- I do think it's slow. I do think it's a little boring. But something about it clicked into place for me. And because of that, Chris, this is my pick of the week. Yeah, I mean, I would have to give it to it as well as, you know, I'm a huge Star Trek nerd, have been my whole life. I Even the worst movies I watch and rewatch, except Insurrection. I've only managed to watch that twice. I, I After the second time, I was like, why did I even do this? Oh, wait this till you so watch it awful. a second time. No, I was saying I did watch it a, yeah, second, time, it a second time. And I was like, yep, this is even worse than I remember. You know, it shocked me. I was okay with it in the theater, and what shocked me watching it at home 
was the finale being shot in a green screen soundstage <laughs> where they did not have the time nor the budget to fill in the green with right. anything. <laughs> and I was like, I cannot believe, and maybe I know more about green screen now, but I could not believe that they the prop tower thing that they were fighting in right. was just sitting in a sea of neon green. Yeah, yeah. I know. Fascinating. It's, it's it's cheaper looking than the television show. How did this movie even... Anyway, like, I can... I have rewatched... Even Nemesis I've watched like six, seven times. You know, I'm like, I don't care. There's always good stuff to be found in, in all but Insurrection, which is terrible from start to finish. Um, this one, I really... I loved it when I was a kid. I watched I was like filled with joy. I was like, exactly. I liked... When I was nine years old, I was already reading hard sci-fi like Larry Niven and stuff. I was like, oh, I get it. I love Ringworld. So this was my cup of tea. Um, and I, I have, I couldn't even tell you how many times I've seen this movie, like a lot over the years. Not made, definitely not as many as Wrath of Khan, but still a lot. Yeah. And I still love it, but I love it to the point where I can laugh about the parts of it that totally don't work. And there's a lot in here that, you know, some of it's nitpicking about it. Some of it is no, no, this is overtly is bad, but. As a whole, it's a thoroughly enjoyable film, and this is a quality package of putting together for this. I mean, they definitely knocked it out. This is the defining version of this. If you've never seen it, this is the one to see. If you have seen it, this is the one to own. Yeah, definitely the pick of the week. It has one of my favorite rooms in the Enterprise in this one, which is the big, like, there's like a big sort of viewing room that's sort of like a big amphitheater type mm-hmm. relaxation area. Yeah. It's where Decker takes Ilya when he wants to show her board games that they played. Right, right. And I like the thinking there because you're in a spaceship, so there's all these confined tunnels and spaces because they're trying to stack as many people as possible. Mm-hmm. So to have this common area that has a huge high ceiling is probably important for the psychological health sure. of your crew to feel like, ah, oh, I can go out here and it feels nice and open. It doesn't feel as claustrophobic. I like the design thinking. I'm assuming that's the design thinking that went into creating that space. Yeah. And I really like that space. And it's a shame that I haven't, it's a shame that that space was like mothballed after motion picture. Right. So I really like that area. Anyways, I mean, I still remember years later with, uh, I want to say it was first contact when they was they made such a huge deal of saying, we have a brand new room on the enterprise you've never seen. And it was like the stellar cartography room. And they were like advertising it like, Oh, you would be so excited to see this. And then they didn't really do much with it. I was like, Oh, that was it. Okay. So it's just like a 3d map. Like, uh-huh. Oh, exciting. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely a bunch of tech nerds got overly excited about that. The one. X-Men movies were like, huh? Patrick Stewart in a big room where he can look at the whole world right we, we like this idea we like this anyway that's it for this week's digital noise thank you uh john is there anything you want to point out that uh point out to people that they should be checking out that you're doing right now uh hey i am in the movie blood relatives that has its premiere at fantastic fest that will soon be on amc shutter in the month of october just in time for halloween it is a vampire movie and i play a uh i'm only in it for a second blink and you'll miss me but if you happen to watch it I'm the scummy pawn shop owner. That's me. <laughs> so. That's a, uh, unfortunate considering the last film I saw you in, you were the star. Yep. Yeah. I'm not the star in this one, but I am with the star. I get to act with the star. So uh, I don't want to spoil anything, but uh, Noah Segan is a vampire in the film. And uh, I, I may or may not be one of his victims. Isn't that the film he directed as he well? He did direct it, yeah. Okay, fair enough. I'm looking forward to seeing that. 
I am too. I'll, I'll point at the screen like Leo DiCaprio when you come on. Please do. <laughs> I want everyone to woo at the same time. <laughs> woo! Make everybody else in the room go, why go, are they the wooing hell? at the what pawn shop owner? 